0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hernandez Washington
1: Post. This is Cleavute with the Washington
0: Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, February 21st. Today, why Facebook could face billions in fines how the increasing number of private rocket launches is affecting commercial airlines, and Liberian immigrants are facing an uncertain future. You might recall that last year, Facebook got in a lot of trouble. It came out that the company had allowed Cambridge Analytica to mine the personal data of more than 80 million Facebook users. Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg ended up testifying before Congress he apologized for the company failing to make good on its promise to the government to protect users'
2: privacy. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake. And I'm sorry. Well, what happened here was, in effect, willful blindness. Did anybody notify the FTC? No, Senator, for the same reason that we'd considered it a closed, a closed case.
0: Now, the Federal Trade Commission may fine Facebook billions of dollars over that misuse of data. I think consumers
3: for a long time now have been frustrated with companies like Facebook and its peers in Silicon Valley, including Google and Twitter, and the data they amass about them and what they do with that data.
0: Tony Rahm covers tech policy for The Post, and he says that this could be the agency's biggest fine ever levied against a tech company. Facebook had
3: promised the government and had promised consumers that it was going to change its privacy practices. It did so as part of a legally binding order that it brokered with the Federal Trade Commission in 2011 and 2012. That was to settle a different privacy investigation. And so the reason the FTC is taking a look here is to see if Facebook broke its promise. And that's the circumstances under which the agency could bring a fine.
0: And why is it the FTC's
3: job to be the one to investigate Facebook for this? The U.S. doesn't really have a bona fide privacy regulator, right? In the U.S., the closest thing we have to that is the the Federal Trade Commission. That agency is many, many decades old, right? It's 103 years old, I think,
0: exactly. You said that the FTC is 103 years old. When they started out, what were they What were they doing? If- the mandate is deception, right? The historic remit of the FTC
3: is to police companies that say they're going to do one thing and then ultimately don't do it or act in a way that harms competition or harms consumers. And so when the FTC takes a look at a company like Facebook, what it's evaluating is Did it tell consumers it was going to do one thing with their data and then ultimately did something else. Those terms of service that people click the check mark box on and, uh, you know, they don't actually read, the FTC is looking at that to see if what Facebook says it's doing with your data is actually what the company is doing with your data.
0: How likely is it that the FTC will actually be able to enforce some kind of punishment against Facebook because it seems like they've been pretty unsuccessful so far? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on what kind of punishment you
3: want the agency to hand down to a company like Facebook. There's no federal consumer privacy law for the agency to enforce. There are no set of rules that exist, you know, on the books for the U.S. government that... Thank you. The cat specifically guards the data that a company like Facebook or Google collects. So the agency is already limited from the start at what it can do. It typically can only hit you with a big fine if you've already screwed up one time and the agency has determined that you've screwed up a second time. Now, that's what the FTC is investigating here after the Cambridge Analytica incident from last year. But there are a ton of privacy groups that say that the agency should have looked at a whole series of other abuses between when that agreement was first brokered in 2011 and, you know, us sitting here today in February of 2019. So the question is, is the FTC willing and able to do it? That's that's the political thing that hangs over the agency right now. Will it actually use what limited authorities it has and really send a message to the company?
0: You've reported that at this point, the FTC is in negotiations with Facebook on a potential fine for those Cambridge Analytica wrongdoings. What what would a fine look like? Like, how big would it be?
3: Yeah, well, it could be into the billions of dollars. That's what sources are telling me here. The last time a tech company brokered an agreement with the government to improve privacy and then totally didn't do that was Google. Uh, That happened a few years ago, and the fine assessed on Google was $22 million, which I'm pretty sure that company makes in a matter of seconds, at least in the eyes of consumers. Uh, So with Facebook, there's this uh, this wizardry that goes on where they determine the calculation. The fine looks to be in the billions of dollars, but as you said, it's a settlement negotiation. These two sides are discussing an outcome that would stop them from going to court. So that's why we don't have an exact number just yet.
0: Why doesn't the FTC just take Facebook to court and say that they're going to find them what they want to find them rather than going through a negotiation process, which sort of seems kind of weird when you're giving someone a penalty and negotiating with them about what that penalty is going to be.
3: Yeah, they get to be their judge and jury in some respect, right? And I think there are a lot of privacy advocates that definitely want to see the FTC issue a sharp fine and say, if Facebook isn't willing to pay it, we're going right to court about it. But it's not always as simple as that. You see, the FTC's authorities aren't entirely well-defined in the area of privacy privacy. An adverse ruling in a case against Facebook could set the agency back and could set privacy protection back in the United States for some time. There's also no guarantee that they would win. You know, Facebook executives would have to be on the stand. It could be a much tougher case for an agency that is significantly smaller with fewer resources, money and otherwise, uh, compared to a multibillion dollar giant like Facebook.
0: How soon will we know... What happens to Facebook in this?
3: There's no shot clock on something like this. It could be days. It could be years. The agency is actually historically really slow at dealing with some of these investigations. We have a sense that it's going to be sooner than later based on conversations that we've had and the fact that. Discussions about a fine suggest it's in much later stages of the investigation. We're also coming up on the year mark of the commission's announcement that it was investigating Facebook for Cambridge Analytica. But there's a lot that suggests that this won't be the end, even if a fine is brokered between the two sides, because there are so many other things that Facebook did wrong between the Cambridge Analytica scandal and today that Folks would like to see the FTC investigate. So this could be the beginning of additional penalties or additional probes still to come.
0: Well, yeah, you have to wonder, even if Facebook ends up having to pay some huge fine, they make a lot of money. And will will this case and what comes out of this case actually stop them from doing other things in the future that also invade people's privacy? Yeah, that's the number one thing the privacy advocates say. Money is not enough.
3: And so the question is going forward... If the FTC brings this big fine that I think a lot of folks would like to see the FTC bring, will it also do things that change Facebook's behavior, like subjecting it to more oversight or demanding that it institute new checks around the ways that third-party app developers can get data, for example? These are the things that privacy advocates believe are much more important than just the dollar figure.
0: Thank you so much, Tony. Thanks. Tony Rahm covers tech policy for The Post.
2: 20 seconds. We're at Mach 1.4.
0: Private rocket launches are becoming increasingly common. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, space is Virgin Territory! (laughs) This one happened last December, orchestrated by Virgin Galactic, the company owned by billionaire Richard Branson. And on Thursday night, Elon Musk's company, SpaceX,
1: is scheduled to launch
0: a rocket in Florida.
1: They want to fly people, they want to do it on an almost you know weekly basis and that's what the airline industry is really scared about.
0: Some air traffic controllers and commercial passengers are not thrilled about this. These launches require huge sections of the sky to be shut down for rocket tests.
1: My name is Christian Davenport. I'm a reporter at The Washington Post. and I cover the space and defense industries. And I'm the author of a book called The Space Barons.
0: Christian says that all of these launches and tests clog up air traffic and can lead to delays and cancellations. And that's been a huge pain for the Federal Aviation Administration.
1: It's just sort of another problem that the airlines are having to deal with. And what they're really concerned about is, yeah, there are, you know, relatively few rocket launches today, but you see this growing industry with all of these billionaires investing in their space companies and they want to fly more.
0: And what do these commercial space companies have to say about that?
1: What they, they say is that, you know, they want the technology that the FAA uses, you know, to sort of mitigate the airspace They want it to be better. I mean, right now, the FAA is not using the best technology out there. At least that's what the space industry says. And the FAA sort of knows this, and they're working on it. And I think everyone agrees that right now, the airspace closure is too big and too long. And so one of the things the FAA is working toward is... Being able to just keep the airspace closed around the rocket and the spacecraft as it goes up, as opposed to just closing down this huge swath around it. Like if you think of like a a football player running down the field, instead of closing down the whole field, you just sort of close the area around the football player as, you know, he runs down the field.
0: So that would theoretically kind of limit the impact on, on regular people flying in regular planes.
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. And so one of the things now is the FAA, if you've ever seen one of those you know, charts that shows you like in real time where all of the airplanes are um, and you see, my gosh, it's so crowded up there. The FAA can see all of those planes in real time. They can't see the rockets. They don't have the ability to, to integrate the rockets into their technology.
0: Oh, interesting. So they they can't track the rocket in a way that that makes it easy to divert other planes around it, depending on where the the rocket is at that moment.
1: That's right. And in some cases, there's, you know, somebody on the phone with the rocket company, and the person at the rocket company is telling the FAA where the rocket is at that point. Uh, They actually, someone uh, told me they call it sneaker net, because instead of having the data on their screens in real time, someone's got to run the data across the room, like in their sneakers, to give it to a controller to let them know where the rocket is. So that if, seems
0: like an unsustainable <laughs> process for communicating with the FAA about like where your rockets at.
1: Unsustainable is actually one of the words that the airline industry uses, and I think people agree. Like this is a technology problem that if they can better integrate, you know, the rockets and get a better sense of where they are with their telemetry in real time and see them, that'll just make it. So much easier to manage but they don't have the ability now
0: is there kind of pushback against this idea of commercial space travel that's gonna eventually cost everybody else you know the the not billionaires more money
1: right so i think the airline industry would say you know look we're flying you know the american public millions of flights a year millions of people a year And this is yet, you know, could be another inconvenience for us. The space industry would say, you know, these commercial tourism flights with humans, A, haven't really happened yet, and B, require a much smaller swath of airspace to be closed because in a lot of cases they're going straight up and then straight down. They're not going to orbit. And when you go on an orbital trajectory, you're launching, you know, say from Florida and then going out over the ocean, which requires more space, but also a much more powerful rocket. And they would say, you know, that those launches to orbit are really putting up really important infrastructure that we all depend on, you know. I mean, a lot of people will focus on the tourists who are paying a lot of money, but, you know, that little blue dot on your iPhone, that GPS signal, comes from a satellite that was launched into space. I mean, uh, national defense, you know, this missile warnings, Weather data, you know, hurricane tracking, all of that comes from assets that are in space. So I think they would say that what they're doing is really important from day to day, even if we don't realize it. like on the one hand, you could be on that tarmac delayed for a flight as we all have been, and you know the pilot could say like, oh well sorry, we're being delayed because there's a space launch and that might impact you, but you may not think that what is on that rocket, actually is really vitally important as well. So there is certainly definitely some tension there, and they're trying to work through all of that.
0: Thank you so much, Chris. Sure, thank you. Christian Davenport covers the business of space for The Post. And now one more thing an uncertain future for Liberian immigrants who've lived in the United States for decades. They've stayed here under a program called Deferred Enforced Departure, or DED. The idea of this program was to allow Liberian immigrants who'd fled civil wars in their home country to live and work in the United States. Every president since George H.W. Bush had extended this protection. But last spring, President Trump announced that he would not be renewing the program— It officially ends on March 31st. Orion Donovan-Smith went to talk with Liberian immigrants about what losing DED status would mean for them.
2: So Magdalene is a single mom in a suburb of Minneapolis. She has lived in the U.S. since 1994 when she came to escape the Civil War in Liberia. After first living in Detroit, she moved to the Atlanta area and got married, had a daughter, Gabby, who's now 17, with another Liberian who passed away back in 2011. Now uh, Magdalene and Gabby moved to Minnesota, which is where the biggest Liberian community is based in the U.S. So Magdalene works as a certified nursing assistant in two different assisted living homes. She works an average of 60, 65 hours a week, something like that, between these two jobs. Anybody can not just do it. You have to have that heart caring to care and and be a caregiver. And pretty much whenever she's not there, she's at church. She's at church like three or four times a week sometimes. It's like another family away from home. Magdalene starts her day at 5:30 with a conference call with women from her church. And as she tells it, they start by reflecting about everything they're thankful for. Their families, their jobs, just that they can get up and take a breath and take a step. Not everyone can do that. They they pray for good weather so they can have a safe commute to work and a good day at church and pray for their family's safety. But lately their, their prayers more and more are about this DED issue. The fact that at the end of March, Magdalene and hundreds of other Liberian immigrants who've been living in the States for as long as three decades are going to lose their work authorization, lose their right to work legally in the country, and be subject to deportation. And Gabby's supposed to be graduating the year 2020, how, how do she celebrate with, with by herself? How do she celebrate? Like, who, where, where will I be when, when this child that I carry and she about to graduate and I'm not around? What happened? What senator or what representative will want their child to graduate with all the parents? So it's tough. I don't like to think about it. I'm trying to stay strong for her and for myself. So in the memo that President Trump issued with this decision, he said that conditions in Liberia had changed in such a way that this program is no longer necessary from a humanitarian point of view. And there's some truth to that. Things in Liberia have gotten better since the civil wars that ended in the early 2000s but many of them have US citizen children because they've lived here for you know at least 16 years and as long as 28 years or so and in that time they have children and some in some cases grandchildren who are US citizens and who have never seen Liberia
0: Orion Donovan-Smith has been working at The Post through a partnership with American University. That's it for today's episode. If you're new to Post Reports, you can subscribe to the show at postreports.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes drop every weekday afternoon. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Making post reports for a couple months now and we want to hear what you think about the show go to postreports.com survey to share your thoughts it takes just a few minutes and you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card that's postreports.com slash survey
2: the 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans and yet there's complexity at every turn